You're listening to Teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to midtowncolumbia.com. Why do you believe in God, but not the Easter Bunny or the Tooth Fairy? That was, uh, that's what he said to me. I was a sophomore in college. He was a grad student. I said, why in the world would you base your life on something that can't be proven? I was uh, ill-equipped as a sophomore in college to deal with the interrogation of a grad student who was trying to deal with his own sense of inadequacy by making Christians seem intellectually inferior to himself. So I just kind of got frustrated, (laughs) said, you're being ridiculous, and walked away because I didn't know what to say. I knew something was wrong with his premise. I didn't know what, and I certainly didn't know how to articulate it. I didn't see what was happening. That's what this series is about. Not necessarily what we believe, but why do we believe what we believe? So as followers of Jesus, we believe in a supernatural, eternal, divine being who has created the heavens and the earth and is working all things to his desired ends. Are we crazy? We believe a man named Jesus from a place called Nazareth lived 2,000 years ago and actually rose from the dead. Like literally he was dead and then he was alive again. Why? Is there any reason to believe that? We believe that the collection of writings that you and I call the Bible is not simply man-made ancient wisdom, but is actually divine rather than human in origin. Is there grounds for believing such things? Are we the craziest people on the planet? So I kept thinking about that interaction with the grad student. Why, how do I, how, yeah, okay, why do I, how do I? So I went and talked to my pastor in college, and I said, hey, how do we know that God exists? And he looked at me and he said, well, how do you know that you exist? And I thought, I am never going to win an argument with that grad student. <laughs> this is not going to go well. So I want to look today at the Bible's argument for the existence of God. It'll be a little bit what you expect and a little bit maybe not what you would expect. I think the best way the Bible describes and talks about the knowledge of God and our knowledge that God is in fact there is from Romans chapter 1. So get a Bible. I want to invite you to follow along with me. We're going to point out a few things here in Romans chapter 1. We do have a lot to cover. I'm going to talk fast and ask you to listen quickly. We will record this. It'll be available audio and video if you want to go back and catch some things that you might have missed. And as Jake already said, we just have tons and tons of extra resources for you to think through all of these things along with us over the next five weeks. How do we know that God exists? Why do we believe that God exists at all? I want to show you some some of the things that the Apostle Paul says in the book of Romans. Let's read a handful of verses here all together, and then we'll work back through and pick them apart, and I'm going to present some arguments and some reasons, and then some some reasons why maybe those reasons aren't as important as you might think they are. Romans chapter 1, verse 16, that'll all make sense in the end. Picking it up in verse 16. 
Paul says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. And when the Bible uses the term gospel here, it's meaning what Jesus has done to make us right with God. This good news that Jesus has lived, died, paid for our sin, and reconciled us to God through faith. It says he's not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Now, men there is gender inclusive, so ladies, you'll be happy to know that God's wrath is on you too. So that's good. <laughs> Who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools." and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So as we start to answer this question about the knowledge of God and we try to trace Paul's argument here, I do want to clarify something first. I think this is really important for our time and place because of the way that we've been taught to think. And I look back on my interaction with that grad student when I was in college, and now I can more clearly see a false assumption that he held. This idea of living a life based only upon proof. The truth is, that's not how anyone lives their life, whether they're secular, atheist, devoutly religious. It's not a possibility to live a life that's based exclusively on proof. I've heard this belief system called exclusive uh, rationality. I've, heard, I've also heard it called logical positivism. It's this idea that we should only believe what can be tested and proven, but it's shot through with problems. For one, it can't meet its own standard. The claim you should only believe what can be tested and proven cannot be tested or proven. Therefore, we can reject it. Second, while we might be able to demonstrably prove some things, there are a great many more things that we can't prove. So here's how pastor and author Tim Keller in one of our recommended reads for the series talks about this. He says, quote, We cannot prove what we believe about justice and human rights or that all people are equal in dignity and worth or what we think is good and evil human behavior. If we used the same standard of evidence that many secular people use to reject belief in God, no one would be able to justify much of anything. For someone who insists on this line of reasoning, that we only should believe what can be tested and proven, don't do this, but hypothetically slap that person in the face. When they object, you say, oh, I'm sorry, I don't base my life on right and wrong. It can't be proven. Why do you believe in right and wrong, but not the Easter Bunny or the Tooth Fairy? and then you win, hypothetically. <laughs> Another example, you can't prove that you exist. Did you know that? I don't mean to ruin your day. You can't prove that your senses are accurate. You could be hooked up to the matrix. 
The only way to test your senses is to assume their reliability, and therefore you're using circular reasoning. To assume that you exist and that your senses are working properly is a reasonable assumption, but it is an assumption. It is a belief upon which all your other beliefs are built, including the ability to rationally think and process information presented to you. So there's virtually no one in the sphere of philosophy who believes in this line of reasoning anymore because it so quickly falls apart upon inspection. The problem is most secular people tend to fall into this line of thinking by assuming that religious people are living by blind faith, reasonless, baseless faith, while secular non-believers in God are grounding their position in evidence and reason. This is a false assumption. Everyone builds their life on a mixture of belief and reason. There's no such thing as a life that's only and exclusively based upon what we might would call proof. Tim Keller goes on to say reason is a crucial and irreplaceable way to help us with competing beliefs. But it's impossible to claim that we should believe only what is proven and that therefore since religion can't be proven, we shouldn't embrace it. All of us have things we believe, including things we would sacrifice and even die for, that cannot be proven. We should, therefore, stop demanding that belief in God meet a standard of universally acknowledged proof when we don't apply that to the other commitments upon which we base our lives. One last quote is from a, a theoretical chemist named Neil Shinvey. He studied at Princeton, UC Berkeley, Yale, and Duke. I just say that so you know that he's smart. He says, arguments for God's existence, quote, should not be viewed as proofs of God, but as evidence for God. Why? Because proof is generally relegated to the field of mathematics. Speaking as a professional scientist myself, I can attest that scientists rarely demand proof that theories are true. Instead, scientists and those in many other fields, such as economics, medicine, and archaeology, seek the best explanation for the evidence that they have. When considering arguments for God's existence, we should not demand proof, but, it, but should instead ask ourselves, which worldview is the best explanation of the evidence provided? Which worldview is the best explanation of the evidence provided? That's critical. That's the category that we're operating in. Not proof, but evidence. And now with that set as our foundation, what we find in Romans chapter 1 is that Paul asserts we can know that God exists. He says more than that, but he does say that we can know that God exists. He asserts that enough evidences are given for us to have the knowledge of God's existence. Look back at verses 19 and 20. He says, For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, meaning, namely, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So catch what he's saying. We can have the knowledge of God's existence, including some of his attributes, namely his power, his divine nature, and that God has shown those to them, according to the Bible, ever since the creation of the world in things that have been made. So we're looking inside of God's creation and we're saying that there are ways in which we can reasonably come to a conclusion that God exists and that he's there. These are a lot of what people will call traditional arguments for God's existence. That if you look at the natural world, the created world, you can see a lot of evidence 
that God exists. Many of these are very old. They've been redone and reworked over time as we've gotten more insight and more evidence and more understanding and examples about the world that we live in. I would say the two that are most tied to these verses would be what's called the cosmological argument and the teleological argument. I'm going to break both of those down for you. First, the cosmological argument. It goes like this. It's an argument from something rather than nothing. Two premises and a conclusion. The argument goes like, number one, whatever begins to exist has a cause. Two, the universe began to exist. Three, therefore, the universe has a cause. It goes all the way back to Aristotle. It's the question of why is there something rather than nothing? Where did the original something come from? For a while, there was the claim that our universe has just always been. It's always been there. But then in the past 100 years or so, starting with uh, Edwin Hubble, Hubble telescope guy, he was studying the red light of, uh, of light as it travels through space. I was so confused I didn't even follow it. Anyway, what he, what he found empirically, allegedly, is that our universe had an origin point. Definitively, it has not always existed. It has an origin point and has been slowly expanding ever since that origin point. This is what became in common vernacular uh, known as the Big Bang. I'm sure you've heard of this concept of the Big Bang, that at some point there was this explosion, and from that began our universe, the galaxy, everything that we know and see when we look into space, including our planet. And the question then is, if the world began 14 billion years ago with a Big Bang, where did the materials that caused the Big Bang come from? You can't keep going back into infinite regress into nothingness. Eventually, something has to come from somewhere. Nothing cannot just explode. All right, so in his book, The God Delusion, Richard Dawkins, who is a, a, a famous atheist, admits this is actually a problem. And one of the quotes in the book, he says, Darwin's theory, meaning about evolution, works for biology, but not for cosmology, meaning origins. Cosmology is waiting on its Darwin. In other words, he's saying, we do not have an answer. The atheist community, we do not have an answer for how something eventually became, how nothing eventually became something. It is self-evident that nothing times nobody can't equal everything. One Christian philosopher used this analogy. He says, suppose you're hiking through the forest and you come upon a ball lying on the ground. And you wonder, how did that come to be there? And your hiking buddy says, forget about it. It just exists. There was nothing, and now there's this. You would think he's either joking or just wants you to keep moving. No one would take seriously the idea that the ball just exists without any explanation. And then he says, now notice that increasing the size of the ball until it becomes the size of the universe does nothing to either provide or remove the need for an explanation of its existence. Whatever begins to exist has a cause. Nothing can't just become something. The universe began to exist. Therefore, in conclusion, our universe has a cause, some cause outside of itself, powerful enough to cause what we now see, which is another word for God. Is it proof? No, no, but it's evidence, evidence that must be accounted for in whatever theory, in whatever theory we ascribe to it's one of the ways the knowledge of God is made plain since the creation of the world, as Romans 1 says. Let me give another one. Teleological argument. This is an argument from design. It goes like this. Our world 
has a design. Anything with a design has a designer. Therefore, our world has a designer. So telos means purpose. Our creation appears very finely tuned for a purpose. So this is sometimes called the fine-tuning argument. And the more we learn about this, the more amazing it becomes. Um, this was, is an argument that discovery has made even more compelling. Life on earth depends on multiple factors that are so precise that if they were off by even a hair, life couldn't exist at all. Uh, some people call it the Goldilocks principle, that things are just right for human life. I'll give you a few examples. The makeup of our atmosphere. It's around 78% nitrogen, 21% oxygen, 1% argon, and then 0.04% carbon dioxide. If these levels were even slightly off, if the level of oxygen dropped by just a few percentage points, we would all suffocate. If it rose by just 4%, our planet would erupt into a giant fireball and we'd all die. If the carbon dioxide were just a little bit higher or just a little bit lower, then the earth would become an oven or have no atmosphere at all, and we would all die. Uh, this one's cool. The water molecule is the only molecule whose solid form, ice, is less dense than its liquid form, which means when it freezes, it floats. If ice did not float, it would sink to the bottom of the, whole, of the ocean, and eventually it would, all the world would freeze from the bottom up, and we would all die. If we were 2% closer to the sun, the planet would be too hot for water to exist on it, and we would all die. There's the tilt of the earth, which is 23.5 degrees, which we've learned is perfect for temperatures and tides and all of that. You probably never thought about it, but if it was not tilted, temperatures would be so extreme, we would all die. We now know that Jupiter if Jupiter wasn't the size or in the orbit that it is, some astronomers predict that there would be 10,000 times the number of asteroid strikes on the Earth, and we would all die. <laughs> Without Jupiter, our planet would be pummeled with asteroids. Life could never exist. Let's give it up for Jupiter, you guys. Man, way to go, Jupiter. If you put down the telescope and you pick up a microscope, there's insane complexity in the cell and in atomic structure. This is a quote from Francis Collins, who's the head of the Human Genome Project. He says, DNA, with its phosphate sugar backbone and intricately arranged organic bases stacked neatly on top of one another and paired together each rung of the double twisted heel with nerd alert, <laughs> seems an utterly improbable molecule to have just happened, especially since DNA seems to possess no intrinsic means of copying itself. How could a cosmic accident ever result in something of this digital elegance of a DNA strand? One philosopher said it's like thinking an explosion in an ink factory could inadvertently produce the collected works of Shakespeare. It's way too intelligently organized. Uh, Stephen Hawking, in one of his later books, actually said, the laws of science as we know them at present contain many precise ratios, like the size of the electric charge and of the electron and the ratio of the masses of the proton and the electron. The remarkable fact is that the values of these numbers seem to have been very finely adjusted to make possible the development of life. At some point, we should get suspicious. It's a little too situated. Makes me think of the film classic, uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2, Secret of the Ooze. It was made in 1991. 
And there is a part in that movie where Raphael, one of the Ninja Turtles, is kidnapped. Yes, I am making a point out of this. Uh, is kidnapped, and the other turtles need to go rescue him. And so they go to the place where he's being held, and they show up, and one of them says, it's quiet. And another turtle says, a little too quiet. And they walk in. There they see a couple of foot soldiers. They quickly dispense of them. And one of them says, well, that was easy. And another one responds, a little too easy. <laughs> and then they look up and they see Raphael. And one of them says, look, it's Raph, a nickname for Raphael. <laughs> and Michelangelo, the Ninja Turtle, says, a little too Raph. And 10-year-old me thought that was the best comedic writing that the world has ever seen. I mean, I laughed and laughed and laughed. It's so funny. The point is, <laughs> even Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles know to be suspicious when conditions seem just a little too conducive. And they were right. It was a trap. It was a trap. The argument against the teleological argument most often is something along the lines of, yeah, yes, it's all amazing, but we could only exist on a planet that was finely tuned for us. Of course, we find ourselves existing on a planet that allows our existence. There's no other way we could find ourselves existing. So it seems like a miracle, but it's not... Uh, something can be mathematically improbable to the point of seeming impossible, but once it happens, it's a certainty. We are here. We could only exist on a planet that it allows our existence. This is not actually shock and awe. This is just straightforward. Of the trillions of planets in all of the universes, surely one of them eventually had the necessary fine-tuning for us to come into being over time. That tends to be the argument. In fact, there's even been a presentation of the concept of a multiverse, that there are multiple universes out there um, where you eventually find that the odds work themselves out. There are trillions of planets, so eventually one of them was going to be conducive to life as we know it, to life that we need. Now, some of the problems with that pushback are... Well, number one, even so, if there is a multiverse with trillions of planets out there, those had to come from somewhere. So the cosmological argument still holds. Number two, there's not a shred of evidence for multiple universes. Not a droplet. There is no reason to think that we have a multiverse other than DC comics and science fiction movies. There's not a shred of evidence for it. And then number three... At some point, you're just past common sense. My favorite example comes from a philosopher named Alvin Plantinga. He uses this in his class. He says, okay, you're saying trillions of planets. At some point, probability kicks in, and we find ourselves in this one where all of the things that had to happen accidentally happened, and it's conducive for our life on the earth. He says, all right, let me give you a competing scenario. Let's say you're in Texas. You're playing poker. You're at a table with some cowboys. You're dealing. Four hands in a row, you deal yourself four aces. Fifth hand, you deal yourself four aces. They pull out their guns. You say, wait, 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 wait. Of all the trillions of planets that exist, 
probability would say that eventually we had to find ourselves at a table where I dealt myself five hands of four aces in a row. They're going to shoot you. (laughs) Because at some point, it is more likely that it is deliberate than it is accidental. That excuse is not going to fly. At some point, we're just outside of the realm of common sense. It's much more reasonable to believe and assume it was deliberate. So it's possible, yes, it's possible that human life and matter came about by accident. But isn't it unreasonable to base your life on the idea that the one in a trillion chance happened? That's the teleological argument. Our world has a design. Anything with a design has a designer. Therefore, the world has a designer. So those are two of the many arguments for the existence of God that come from observable creation, as Paul says here in Romans. There are a good many more. We've got resources available on the website, things like the regularity of nature, the ontological argument, human consciousness. I tried to read one about math. Somebody made an argument that math is a proof that God exists. They even quoted a Nobel Peace Prize speech that was titled, The Unreasonable Effectiveness of Mathematics in the Natural sciences. And I didn't understand a single word of it. I mean, not not like I didn't understand the argument. I'm saying there were no words inside of this speech. I just, I don't know. So that's out there if you want to check it out. There are some good arguments to consider. And for, for many people, those sorts of arguments are very powerful. They carry a lot of weight. For some of us though, uh, those kind of arguments might not Move the needle. Maybe, maybe someone here, you're thinking, you know, I'm an atheist. I didn't know about Jupiter, though. And now that you've told me about Jupiter, I might be a god out there. <laughs> maybe so. For many people, we can even say, okay, I guess these arguments are fine. They just don't necessarily do something. We don't find them persuasive. What's interesting is that that sort of argumentation is not actually the main point that Paul's making in Romans 1. He doesn't spend a ton of time on it. He says they're there. It's observable. God's made it known. You can can look into them. But the main point that Paul actually makes in Romans 1 is he says, the knowledge of God is made known through creation, yes. But if you were to ask Paul, how do you know God exists? His answer would be, you can rationally get there by looking at the world. But you actually already know God exists intuitively. Everyone does. That's what he said. He argues, everyone already knows God exists. You know it intuitively. In fact, the vast majority of the people in the world believe in God. They always have. And they haven't done it by working through the cosmological and teleological arguments. They just know it intuitively. Look back at verse 18. Let Let me point out all the times that Paul says this. All the times where he says, you already know God exists. Verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Suppress the truth means you have it and you're pushing it down. So you might underline suppress the truth. Verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them. You might underline plain to them. Because God has shown it to them. You might underline shown it. them. Notice that these are all past tense. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have, have been clearly perceived. You might underline have been clearly perceived. 
ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God. Then later in verse 24, he says that we have exchanged the truth of God for a lie. So over and over again, Paul here says human beings already know there's a God, even if we won't admit it to ourselves. That's Paul's point. That's his main argument for the knowledge of God. Everybody actually already knows there's a God intuitively. So this is actually what my pastor in college meant when he said, how do you know that you exist? You don't know that you exist through a series of arguments. You know you exist intuitively. This is how everyone knows that God exists. The problem is, according to Paul, we don't want to know. So we suppress the truth that we know. The reality of God is too unsettling. It's too traumatic. So we suppress it. We know, but we don't want to know. So we don't know. So you wanted to talk philosophy. Paul's taking you to therapy. Talking about repressed knowledge. His assertion is that everyone knows that God is there. Eternal, powerful creator. And we intuitively know what that means. It means we owe him everything. And because of our sin, human beings do not want to admit that we are completely dependent upon God for everything. We don't want to admit and own up to the reality that he keeps us alive every second. That everything we have belongs to him. That we shouldn't make a move without asking him. Because that means we would lose all control. So we hate the knowledge of the true God, so we hold it down. We repress it. We suppress it. And that's what every single one of us are doing. And there's multiple ways that you can suppress the knowledge of God. You can say, I don't think that he's there at all. And then you get to keep control of your life. You could also make up a version of God where you say something like, I believe that God's there. I just think he's a God of love. And he just accepts everyone no matter what they want to do. In which case you keep control. They both work. Both are fine for suppressing the knowledge of the true God. Now, very few people know that we're doing that. Most of us fancy ourselves as bipartisan, neutral, dispassionate, unbiased. We like to think we're objectively weighing the evidence when we are not. Uh, This is how atheist philosopher Thomas Nagel puts it in his book titled The Last Word. He says, quote, I want atheism to be true. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. I'm curious whether there's anyone who could genuinely be indifferent as to whether there is a God. He says, I don't want there to be a God because then I have to change the way I live. And I don't think anybody could be objective about this subject. That's exactly what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 1. Of course no one's objective. We know God is there, but we also know what that means, and so we suppress that knowledge. Let me give you a couple of arguments, not necessarily for the existence of God, but for the fact that you know he's there and you can't live like he's not. That you already believe that God is there. The first one, uh, and is number three in our, in our uh, four arguments that I'll give you for the day, is the moral argument. The moral argument. It's fairly straightforward. There's a universal moral law. Therefore, there is a moral law giver. This one is a little bit less about premises and conclusions because it's grounded in what you already know. 
Here's how simple it can be. Is there anything happening in the world that you believe is evil? Now, of course, you answer that question, yes, because all of us would. Therefore, you know God exists. It's really that simple. Now, there's more to unpack there, but that's the simplicity of the argument. That we all, each of us, we have moral feelings, meaning things that would be wrong for me to do. Okay? And secular Americans love to say they think others should decide what's right and wrong for them. Yet, when we look at some evil, like human trafficking, we say it isn't simply that it would be wrong for me to do that. We say it's wrong for anyone to do that. It's a transcendent standard that applies to everyone everywhere. And the only way to have a transcendent standard is to have a transcendent standard giver who has written his law on our hearts, as Romans 2 says. So we insist that people care about justice. We insist that people not trample the poor, that we, we believe in human rights. But if there is no God, there's absolutely no basis for talking like that. If there's no God, we're just animated pieces of meat. We're not even here for a purpose. So there can't be a right way to live. We're here by accident. So anytime you say that's unjust, that's just your opinion. It's just an opinion. So if you would say, I believe all humans are equal in dignity and worth, therefore all have rights that must not be violated. I would say, I agree with you. I believe that because I believe we're created in the image of God. Why do you believe that? You might say, well, I just think it's self-evident. Mm, most people in the world would not agree with that statement. Most people in the world would not agree that it's self-evident, that all people are equal in worth and value. You could say, well, I mean, we, it's like it's just a, we observe it from nature. No, you don't. No, you don't. Uh, the strong rule the weak as a rule in nature. Why in the world is it wrong when humans do it? That doesn't flow. That's, that's, that's non sequitur. If there's no God, then you have no basis for calling human trafficking evil. You can say it's distasteful to you, but to call it evil, you need a standard outside of nature that applies to everyone, whether they agree or not. Now, here's the power of the argument. You know that human trafficking is evil. You know it. You know people should stop doing it. The reason why? is because what we're all doing is living as if there's a God because we know there's a God, but we suppress the truth. We can't live as if there's no God because deep down we know that he's there. Let me end with one more. Another inward one as an evidence that you already know that God's there. We call this one the existential argument. <clears throat> the existential argument. It goes like this. We have a natural desire for the transcendent. Natural desires have a corresponding object. Therefore, something transcendent exists. Now, I'll admit, this one is by far the most subjective of the ones that I'm bringing up today. And the argument is simply this. That inside each of us is a longing for something eternal and infinite. There are things that seem to be implanted in us that tell us that we are more than just accidental biology and that we were created for something infinite. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, puts this argument this way. He says, a baby feels hunger. Well, there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. 
there's such a thing as water. People feel sexual desire. There's such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. So hunger doesn't mean that a particular meal exists and it will be brought to you. Right? That's, not what we're, that's not what we're saying. But the innate appetite that we call hunger does correspond to the existence of food. Innate desires correspond to real objects that can satisfy them. Sexual desire, sex exists. Tiredness, sleep exists. Relational desires, friendship exists. So if we find in ourselves a longing for something eternal and infinite, is that not at least potential evidence for the existence of something eternal and infinite that corresponds to that longing? Do we have a longing for joy and love and beauty that no amount or quality of food or sex or friendship or success can satisfy? We know that these things matter and we long for them both here and now and then always we long for them in an eternal and an infinite fashion. We want something that nothing in this world seems able to to fulfill. So this idea begins to pull together all the stuff that we've talked about today. It explains what we feel when we look into the stars or what we feel when we look deep into the eyes of someone we love. You sense this hint at something bigger, something more. It explains what you feel when you marvel over the intricacy of the things on earth that particularly amaze you and what you sense when you hear transcendent music. It explains what you feel when a loved one dies and why you revolt against injustice in your life and in the world. If there is no God then love is meaningless. Beauty is just chemicals in your brain. Right and wrong are just preferences. Calls for justice are just opinions. It doesn't matter how we treat each other because one day the sun's going to explode. Nobody's going to ever know we existed in the first place. There's no argument that we should treat each other with kindness and dignity and love and respect. But is love meaningless? Are right and wrong just preference and calls for justice just opinions? Is beauty just chemicals in your brain? If there is no God, the answer must be yes. But we do not live this way. We cannot live this way. We know that beauty and love mean something. In their presence, we can no more deny that they mean something than we can deny the nose on our face. No matter our beliefs about the randomness of life, the meaninglessness of life, standing in front of beauty and love, we know better. We know better. So if a premise i.e. there is no God, leads you to a conclusion that you know is not true. Love is meaningless. Beauty is just chemicals in your brain. Right and wrong are just opinion. If a premise leads you to a conclusion that you know is not true, then why not reconsider the premise? But on the other hand, if God exists, then the Big Bang is is not mysterious, nor is the fine-tuning of the universe. In fact, they're what we would expect to find. If God exists, then our intuitions about the meaningfulness of love and beauty are to be expected. We long for something eternal and infinite because that is what we were created for. And the question remains, which worldview is the best explanation of the evidence? So here's how Paul puts our situation. It's Romans 1.25. We read it initially. He says that all of us have exchanged the truth about God for a lie that we've made a horrible trade. We've traded the truth about God for a lie. We've traded reality for unreality. 
that we suppress the knowledge of God because we think it's too costly. We think we lose too much control. We're no longer in charge of our lives the way that we think we should be. And it's unsettling to acknowledge your dependence and your smallness. We doubt if God's good enough to trust. And so the solution to this is to realize that God is not simply divine power and eternally omnipotent. That he is also the lover of your soul. That he's the eternal God who not only put Jupiter into just the right place so that you won't die but who also wrapped himself in humanity to pursue you who were consciously or unconsciously denying what you know is true about him. He's not the God just of wrath, but the God who diverts his wrath away and onto his son. He's the omnipotent power and the eternal unfailing love. And through Jesus, God invites us to trade back, to trade our sin for his grace, for our unreality to reality. He shows up on our doorstep and invites us to acknowledge the truth we've been suppressing. And when we do, we gain far more than we lose by coming to him and by surrendering to him and by bowing to him and by giving control to him and by trusting him. We lose control, but we get God. And both of those are actually the best possible things for us. So as believers, we would say, we think there's good reason to believe that God exists that he's shown who he is and what he's created, but more importantly, he's shown who he is on the cross. So as we transition, we'll take some time to remember both of those, that God is the eternal power, the omnipotent creator who came on a rescue mission to save us, that Jesus on the cross was dying for our sin so that we could acknowledge safely that God is there, that his control in our lives is actually the best possible thing for us because he's the lover of our souls. So I want to pray. The band's going to come back up. We'll take some time. Uh, if you want to th- just think, that's fine. This was a, sort of a heady, uh, full of different ideas and thoughts type of teaching today. So if you just want to take some time to think, look at your journal, jot some notes down, that's great. We're going to sing. Feel free to pray. We've got communion stations scattered around the room for those of us who are followers of Jesus as we take communion, remembering the body and blood of Jesus broken and spilled for us to reconcile us to this God that we all know is there. So let me pray for us and we'll transition and respond. Lord, thank you for these words today um, from Romans chapter 1. I thank you for your truth that shines light on our predicament, for the insight that we gain here. God, we are all guilty of suppressing the truth that we know intuitively. And so, Jesus, would you send your spirit to set us free, to regenerate us, to open our hearts, our minds, our eyes, so that we can see truth clearly, that we can see you clearly. God, we want to acknowledge you as eternal creator, the divine transcendent cause. And we want to acknowledge that you've created us for you and that our hearts will never rest until they're found in you. And so Jesus, thank you that you've come for us, that you've died for us so that we could be reconciled to God the Father. God, would you just work in our midst as we process, as we think, as we pray, and as we respond, we ask all this for your glory and our good. Amen. I mean, why don't you guys stand?